Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Clerics' Ringmail. Or it's evening enough when I am recording this here segment, and I have another special guest for you today. A special treat. I'm here with my buddy Stephen. Uh, he is the mind behind the World of Weirth, a supplement for the low fantasy gaming rule set. Uh, Stephen, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yep, thank you very much for coming on. It's exciting to have you. So, <clears throat> how's the week treating you so far? It's been good. The weather has been beautiful. Uh, we're here in the New England area, and it's very uh, warm and sunny. It's been really nice. Oh, nice. I like hearing that. like hearing it. So, I'm down here in Florida, so it's uh, sunny every day, uh, except when there's a hurricane. <laughs> or from three to four when it rains for forty-five minutes. That is true. You've you have been to Florida before. It sounds like. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I lived there when I was uh, when I was just a kid. Oh, that's cool. Uh, what what part, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, in Tampa. Tampa. Oh, uh, yeah. My cousin lives down there. Actually, yeah. My cousin and his uh, his family uh, are Tampa natives. So small world, my friend. Uh, I did yeah, not. I did not. Yeah, I did not know that, listeners, uh, before I asked it, so it really is a small world. <laughs> That's yeah, Well, I lived there back in the 70s, the late 70s, so it's, I'm sure it's a completely different city than it was back then. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to ask my dad. He, uh, he lived there in the 80s, so slightly later than, uh, than you did. I think he went to school down there. Uh, what is it, USF is in Tampa? I think so. Okay. It's yeah. Just, or it's close by. Yeah. Yeah. He's. I'm glad he doesn't listen to my podcast because he would be on my case for for messing mm -hmm. that up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, again, thank you for coming on. And so, like I said, Stephen is the author of the World of Weirth. Uh, it is a supplement for low fantasy gaming, and he's got a. Uh, presence on social media has got a Twitter at least that I'm following and a website uh, that I can link you over to these will be in the show notes for reference and uh, he's, he comes to the hobby with a long uh, long experience so he's been doing this for a while and you can uh, you can feel it in some of the stuff he puts together so uh, Stephen I'll how did you get into uh, role-playing games out of curiosity Oh, back uh, <clears throat> back in the dark ages, um, some of my middle school friends, they had older brothers, and the older brothers were going off to college. And so I believe it was the summer of 82, which would have been between 6th grade and 7th grade for us. Uh, we were initiated into the mysteries of the, uh, the Holmes Basic set. Um, and shortly after that, uh, a couple, three campaigns up and everybody wanted to be a dungeon master so we all played in each other's games and then pretty soon we discovered the hardbound advanced dungeons and dragons books and oh, beautiful the uh, uh, the older well, sibling the rest... left the uh, stone tablets behind when they went to college <laughs> well no all they left us was the homes book uh we found the uh we found that there was an advanced version in the bookstore oh that's and, fun uh, that really that really, we uh, we went wild over that. So, uh, and of course, just being kids, you know, we took turns and we saved our, our lawn mowing money. And uh, I remember one of us bought the Dungeon Master's Guide, another one bought the Player's Handbook, and another one bought the Monster Manual. And uh, we all took turns reading them and trying to memorize as much as possible. Nice. And so then, of course, we played a crazy mashup of Holmes and AD&D for the next few years. That's... They they work together. I guess that's the beauty of the uh, the beauty of the TSR editions. It's funny you mentioned uh, buying the independent books uh, and then sharing them between the group. I wish I had figured that out. <laughs> I never figured that out until college. And uh, in uh, that's a that's a smart thing. I'm going to write that down and try to try to send that back quantum leap style. But Holmes although Bay. I'll tell you what, by the end of seventh grade. Um... One of my friends and I, we had both managed to scrimp and save, and we we each had all three books. And like the the classic, the classic nerds, we carried them with us everywhere we went in a duffel bag, um, you know, with a with a quad ruled pad and a bunch of papers and uh, pencils and different colored pens. So 
at any moment, if we had nothing to do, we could break out and start working on the dungeon of some kind. Wonderful. And for those of uh, for those of you who may be newer to the hobby, the duffel bag was essential. Uh, one, those books were built like center blocks. I'm pretty sure some of the leftovers they use them down here in uh, the St. Augustine, Jacksonville area to uh, build shelters on the beach that'll withstand the hurricanes with the run they roll through. Uh, but moreover, too, they were a little heavy. So when the uh, satanic panic types or the jocks would come over and try to uh, disabuse you of your D&D &D notions, you could always hit them with the, with the duffel bag. And so it was a self-defense mechanism in addition to uh, the carrying capacity. So Holmes Basic and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So that is, uh, there's a resurgence uh, of that recently. Holmes had a clone come out, the Blue Holm clone, which I have played a little bit of. It's a, a friend of mine ran a Holmes game, so I downloaded Blue Holm to kind of get a, get a beat on what was expected. The AD&D, though, that's seeing a wide resurgence on uh, the uh, OSR spheres that I tend to go around in. So for the longest time it was all BX all the time and I think that's mostly because the BX chassis is easy to uh, to break, uh, break without breaking so you can take it and do what you want to do with it. Uh, AD&D has a little bit more working pieces that go along with it so you have to be very careful and make sure that if you replace the timing belt with a timing chain that you got that tensioner set to the right place. But, yes, yeah. that is definitely one way to look at it. Um, advanced D&D, AD&D, is really, it's a continuation, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a continuation of what had come before with uh, original D&D, the little round books, in that it continues to be, or continued to be a series of subsystems bolted together uh, that made a whole that was greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that's one of the big complaints that some newer entrants to the role-playing arena have about old-school Dungeons & Dragons is that there, there is no unified mechanic, there is no core system, that uh, everything you do, almost everything you do, takes a different die, has a different number range, etc. So that's... Yeah. When, when you when you grew up with that and that's all you knew and you were used to that from various other games as well it didn't seem alien or strange so the the newcomers when they you know encounter a newer system that has much more modern design elements and more design thought put into it that you know perhaps has a more limited <clears throat> palette of mechanics than uh Looking at the older systems, it looks like a hodgepodge. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, hodgepodge I, I, I is see that. very, very interesting, and I think a lot of people are going back and and learning, learning new mechanical tools that have been dropped from games because they just seem too hard or too, too weird or didn't make sense. And uh, when when you take it as a whole, it it really works very well. Yeah. Absolutely, it does. And the, the funny part is, you take, um, I will be the first to admit that I am not the most well-versed on the AD&D line, but I do have the core books, which I picked up on sale as a reprint, and they are thinner, uh, just looking over at my shelf, they're actually thinner in profile than my third edition books. And so a lot of people, third edition being the edition that introduced for the Dungeons and Dragons franchise, that core mechanic, that D20 for everything kind of system, they're smaller. Uh, <laughs> the advanced game, despite its nomenclature, is actually not that hard to grok. And once uh, once you take a look at it, there's there's a lot of density. There's a lot packed into, especially the Dungeon Master's Guide for the for the first edition of uh, of the game. But when you compare that to the editions that followed, even AD&D, which uh, has a reputation for being spooky 
it's uh, it's really not. It's it's pretty straightforward to understand, and there's not as much to it as you would come to expect with a newer a game like the. I I don't know enough about fifth edition to compare the two, but with third, I can per, I can personally vouch that AD and D and third edition, the crunch the crunch is on the side of the newer game. Oh, for sure, absolutely, and. The, the well, the other interesting thing about the games are the books of the older editions are thinner, partially because the authors and creators of those books building on a foundation, and they were building or writing those rules, assuming that their audience already knew a whole bunch of other things related to role-playing games, related to board games, related to you know. Uh, fiction and science fiction literature, uh, fantasy literature. Those there are lots and lots of assumptions baked into those books, so they can be smaller because you're supposed to know what these things are already. Yep, things that uh, things that folks would have learned uh, playing at the uh, at the hobby shops of their time. Right, and we're just assumed. You know, when when they when they read a rule, say something like, um, you know, you can. As a first level magic user, you're able to hold one spell in your mind. Um, if you've read the Jack Vance books, then you'll understand that magic spells are almost like living creatures and you have to overcome them and basically trap them in your brain in order to be able to utilize their power. And so there's, there's a reason that as an inexperienced wizard, you'd only be able to hold one in your mind. And as you gain experience and strength, you can hold more and more. And then once you let that energy out, it's gone. The, the living creature, as it were, of the spell has gone and done its thing, and you just don't have it anymore. It's not as though it's a, it's a formula or a poem, you know, or a story or, or something that you just memorize and recite. And, you know, why does it go away? That doesn't make any sense. I remember, you know, I, this, you know, I remember these songs. I remember things like that. But the spells were assumed to be something completely different than that and so even as a young person when i was first getting into the game i hadn't read jack dance um so it's difficult to understand until someone older pointed that out to me and i went and found those books yeah yeah but understood it's not a uh, difficult it's not a difficult thing to have missed jack vance uh, as you get later into the uh the century because he was active and most popular in the 50s and 60s as i seem to recall and these days it's kind of a challenge to get him uh in print you can find him on audible and i almost uh, i almost signed up for audible just for that uh to listen on my commutes but then um then 2020 happened, and we won't go into that. Sure. <laughs> but and that's a, that leads us into our topic of today. Um, <clears throat> in the string of episodes where uh, I'd been talking with some guests and callers about house rules, uh, magic, Vancey and magic, is probably the most house ruled away item for any given game, and it's probably the biggest target for other systems, competitor systems to the uh, big dog in the room to try to differentiate from the uh, fr from the norm. And Stephen here has brought along his contribution to the challenge. So we'll start in talking about World of Weirth and the m system that you've put together. Yes, the system I put together is uh, once again, I will be proud to say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And the system that I wanted to try, the World of Worth is a campaign setting that started out simply as a method of playtesting a magic system that I had in my head. And it's taken on a life of its own. It's run for two years now. Um, I have several players. Uh, two of them have been with me since the beginning um, we've had some come and some go and we've done some open table things but uh, it's been a lot of fun and the players are actually very invested in going ahead and building their characters and seeing what happens organically as opposed to okay, now we're going to build a fifth level character and see how magic affects that 
So they're also very invested in the story. I shouldn't say the story, <laughs> the, the background of the setting, um, because it's, I think, something a little different. I decided to go back, back, back to the implied setting of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons world, which is post, post-apocalyptic. And uh, I think that modern-day uh, designers refer to that as a kind of a points-of-light style campaign. But basically, yeah, humanity has splintered, and there are you know nations and kingdoms, but humanity's settlements are isolated and walled and hiding behind power of swords and spears to protect them from the monsters and the ravening hordes. And that'll happen to you when a rogue planet passes between Earth and the Moon, causing the... (laughs) There's a little bit of Thundar in here, too. There is a little bit of Thundar. Um, Basically, if if I had to throw out some fiction as a reference, I would say the Conan the Barbarian movies from the 80s, the uh, Fred Saberhagen novels, uh, Empire of the East, and uh, yeah, a little Thundar, uh, a little bit of that super science and strange magic that uh, permeates the world. Uh, however, I will say this, magic is being forgotten, and actually memory is a big problem, and so the solution to that has been, um, I guess in modern terms, you would say that every magic user in Worth is kind of a warlock in that they haven't made a patron pack per se, but magic power comes from supernatural entities. And as you grow in power and higher levels, the uh, ability to cast higher level spells requires that you uh, essentially summon and dominate supernatural entity and use its power to to modify the uh, world around you. That's got some uh, some Vance vibes to it, interestingly enough, because as I seem to recall, one of the themes of the uh, Dying Earth was, well, it's obvious Dying Earth is a, d- a decadence and decay, but magic itself was stagnant in the Vance novels because the magicians were too busy memorizing by rote what they had learned and trying to take power from what they had as and, and so it stymied the ability of those wizards to ad, make advancements to understand what they were doing almost akin to the uh, manhattan project uh, in terms of nuclear energy we knew that the or the team knew i don't know i just take it i just take the word for it uh, i'm a liberal arts degree not a physicist <laughs> but the um but they knew what was happening but they didn't know why and so years and years after uh, the atomic era began we finally started understanding the why behind what was going on but in in the jack vance fiction that why never happened it was a matter of uh remembering and rediscovering what someone in a more glorious past had already done and, and authored. Right, absolutely. And I, I am trying to tap into that cargo cult sort of mentality in terms of how magic works and create a scarcity so that the magic using characters spend their time and are very, very invested in seeking out the lost magics of the past. And that was a that was one of the aspects of the 1982 Conan the Barbarian, uh, starring Arnold, that I really that is consistently and perpetually inspired me, is the presence of the supernatural, the obvious uh, influence of the supernatural and the and magic on the world, but its scarcity it makes it it makes it very special and it makes it very unique, and that's a very difficult to capture a lot of the time in a game, uh, especially when you look back on classic D&D. The fact of the matter is, a player character, if they happened to roll decent on their wisdom, they can be a cleric now. If they happen to roll decent on their intelligence, it makes sense for them to be a magic user. And so even if those characters get killed in a, uh, a horrible dungeoneering mishap, it 
they, they come back with a new magic user. So the implied setting, though, no matter how rare you try to make it, because it's accessible to the player characters, and it's less so in the older, older editions, because as ever, I'm thinking about BX, clerics don't get a spell at first level, and in all, all of the TSR editions, wizards, they get that one spell uh, at first level, and so you, you have to be very conscientious of what you're doing with it. So there's a, there is a scarcity there, but there's no sense... Uh, folks will have met a magic user. Uh, if, if they don't, it doesn't quite make sense at the, uh, at the character generation. So this is, uh, this is contrasted to, uh, to the Conan movie and some of the Conan fiction as well. Uh, the 1982 film, I will maintain, is more faithful to the fiction than a lot of people give it credit for. But in the, in the Conan stories, the original 1930s pulps, magic and uh, wiz and necromancy and all that fun stuff that existed and it was terrifying and co uh, it was something that was uh, reviled and he had to fight against but it was uh, it was also not the focal point it was something special and unique in that situation and so I've, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there um, yeah no that that, 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 that actually <laughs> takes us into the next part um, the world of worth character creation process. <clears throat> we do three three d six in order, and we use the seven ability score attributes of the low fantasy gaming rules set. Yeah, props to Steve Grad. Oh, absolutely. This this rule set, and I, I chose this rule set on purpose in order to. <clears throat> uh, this is going to sound strange, but I wanted to utilize. The oldest of the old school philosophy. However, I chose a non-standard AD&D style rule set to break the players out of that D&D mindset where they're knights and what have you rampaging around northern Europe. The uh, the setting is much more desert-like. I would liken it more to you know a Mediterranean style setting uh, geographically. Get them out of that mindset where oh we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. No, we are playing low fantasy gaming, and mm. so I think that's had a big effect on a, a lot of things in play. Oh, I believe it absolutely. That's um, expectations are one of the I first things that you have to have to consider for all for all that fun stuff. And then after you roll your ability scores and you decide, ooh, I'd like to be a magic user. Well, no, what you do is you roll your ability scores, and then you go down to the magical ability area, and you roll a d100, because only 15% of characters have any ability whatsoever to be able to manipulate magic. Ooh, got some psionicist vibes going on. If you fail that, or, or you know, if you if you don't roll an 86 plus on that d percent, then you need to think about another class. And so every time you make a character, you know, then it, it limits the it limits the use of magic. Um, and then we also are very strict about using the percent chance to know spell. Uh, one of my players has encountered quite a few spells, and they actually even recovered a couple of spell books. And sadly, he has failed almost every one of his percent chance to know spell <laughs> rolls. And so he is struggling with the idea that he's trapped with the uh i do start them with three different spells um chosen randomly from a limited list so he's not too too horked no but one of the um he doesn't really have any real offensive spells and so he's he's uh struggling to figure out what exactly he should be doing with those things so it's it's interesting and it makes for interesting play Especially since he only had one hit point too, but he's still has managed to make it. He still managed to make it to third level, so that's pretty exciting. Yep. Normally, you hear hit points in the context of the plural, of the plural uh, hit point singular. <laughs> that's old school. Yeah, that's he old school survived. He survived several adventures by uh, not getting directly engaged in combat mm -hmm. and by utilizing his really by playing his role as the magic user and not. Uh, you know, being more of a leader, being more of a problem solver than trying to get in there and mix it up with the monster. Mixing it up. So 
there's a we we have the chance to learn and the the way you acquire spells as you mentioned is more kind of packed do you have uh, magic items like uh, scrolls or a, a kindred items that they can they can yes. quest for yes absolutely scrolls actually um, a magic user character can begin to scribe scrolls at first level uh, it's a, it's one of the skills that they learn as an apprentice um, transferring scrolls and imbuing those scrolls with the magical spellcraft power that they need to implement the spell. Making copies, just like real interns. Yeah, absolutely. Except there's a little more into it because you know there, there's actually there's power in these scrolls. So uh, something else I should probably mention is that we use sort of a spell point system mm -hmm. in that each point is kind of a level in uh, casting spells. So a magic user intrinsically has basically two points that they can use to power spells. So they'd be able to cast, say, two first level spells or one second level spell with their own personal energy. Uh, okay. That actually and answers too what my next question was going to be because I know uh, I have some limited experience with uh, LFG. Um, my uh, buddy Jason over at Mr. Hobbs's Gamerhood, he runs uh, hit or had run uh, a game he called the Midlands, where it was an LFG West March's actual play. Uh, I'll, I will link to those uh, videos in the show notes. Additionally, he had recently done a Thursday night game that I was privileged to be a part of, and that was the day I learned that I am not charismatic enough to play a bard. <laughs> Need to stick to uh, dour clerics or brutal vikings, apparently, because that's how I roll. But the so my, I have some limited ex experience with it, but I do know that magic users in LFG, you do start off, they have spells, uh, they're categorized by level, uh, first through sixth, I believe, and the you get them in a Vancean sense. You have a number of spell uses uh, that you have based on your level, and when you cast a spell, however, there's an added mechanic, the dark and dangerous magic rule. So, I, uh, I Presumably, I know that you had uh, played this game a lot more than I have. So, based on what I know, based on what my uh, listeners and our, our friends on the other end of the microphone are gonna know, how would you describe your system by comparison mechanically to uh, how how it operates in LFG out the box? Well, um, <clears throat> the way it compares is you turn the LFG system up to eleven and uh, then season it a little bit with a little uh, DCC. And by that I mean each spellcaster, when they cast their spell, uh, they do well, let's start at the beginning. In the morning or at the beginning of their day, they will prepare certain spells uh, which they can do of the low levels, uh, first and second level. Those spells, they're able to learn from books, learn from scrolls, learn from carvings on stones, things like that. And they can use their personal energy to power them. They can use sympathetic energy gathered from fire or motion from water and things of that nature. Uh, they can also power them with blood sacrifice. And as they get into the higher level spells, they'll need to be able to control these supernatural entities in order to gain the spell effects. But when they want to exercise a spell, cast a spell, they need to make what's called a task resolution roll, uh, which I guess you might liken that to a difficulty check. Um, <clears throat> and that's based on their level of training. So they'll make that roll first, find out how effective the spell casting is, and then they'll go ahead and we'll play out the effects of the spell. If that spell fails, there is a possibility that they'll need to roll on a dark and dangerous magic table of epic proportions um, that starts with benign corruption and goes all the way up to major corruption. And some serious bad things can happen, uh, not the least of which is, uh, you know, tear open a dimensional rift and allow extra dimensional creatures to enter our world. So 
that hasn't happened yet, but it's it's very possible yep. that can happen. So once they cast their spell, they can then they can actually cast that spell as many times per day as they have the power to do so. Um, if they have a big fire going and they are able to pull the energy from that fire through their sympathy stones, they can cast you know magic missile or what have you over and over and over and over again all day long. The drawback, however, is every time they cast that spell, they have to roll that task resolution for spell failure. And if they fail, bad things can happen. Yep. And I'm just kind of paging through uh, the LFG manual, and I do see in the uh, the, cla the classic book uh, at least one entry, uh, you transform into a gibbering terror. <laughs> <laughs> and I can I have I have not uh, looked through the bestiary, but I can only imagine that's not something I want to do. So, and right, right, absolutely. And so, yeah, so magic becomes much more dangerous, and uh, failure also can cause fatigue. Um, we do run a fatigue rule in the campaign, and spell casting fatigue, or I should say, fatigue caused by spell casting will induce hyperthermia. And so we have hypothermia rules for that. I have had uh, several times magic users have pushed the limits of their ability in order to be sure to cast a powerful spell and defeat a uh, powerful opponent. And it's had a very detrimental effect, basically taking them out of, you know, out of the game for a couple of days, you know, in game time in order to, uh, to accomplish their goal. So it's, it, it, it very much mirrors the fiction, you know, those old those old uh, pulp stories where, you know, the wizard casts his spell and he's got the people on either side holding him up so that he can continue to cast spells. And at the end of the day, at the end of the battle, he just collapses into a heap. And then he's, you know, basically worthless for a week while he recovers. Trying to recover, yeah. That has a little bit of Dragonlance vibes uh, to tie into a... Because uh, the, the whole upcoming... Uh, the upcoming Dragonlance re-release, thinking about Raceland and his... Uh, cough and hit, that he had developed but also there's a book you can tell me if you've read it or not i believe it's called the free by brian ruckley it's a newer book it's uh, not yeah most most of the most of my appendix in is uh at or before my birth in terms of uh <laughs> when it was released but uh, this book is this book is an exception I recommend checking out the first chapter or two. It's got some interesting takes on magic, and specifically there is an ability that their uh, magic user can perform where he takes the... Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Jason. <laughs> but there's a... there's a uh, His ability is to... Uh, is part of this magical ritual. He binds the wounds of his comrades to himself, so they tie, they effectively tie him to a tree in a field five miles away from the battle, and then they send their foot soldiers in to fight. And so he literally gets beat all to uh, beat all left and right, uh, and has to go on bed rest to to get his body on the mend. But the uh, the guys in the the foot soldiers, the the captain, he takes wounds that he immediate he just doesn't take. It's uh, they're transferred across the ether, and very very interesting kind of uh, scene in the book. There a very it, it changes the dynamic of the relationship between the fighter and the uh, I I don't I guess he's a priest archetype. I'm not sure because he's not a priest at all. But he uh, he has sort I guess the magic user in the sense of the word right and you know I, I kind of prefer that term um because i don't necessarily have a cleric class either all magic users are essentially the same in uh in the world of worth and if you're dedicated to a deity that will affect not only the quality but the number and type of spells that you're able to uh, receive and learn and it changes it changes the uh, role to understand on the smaller spells, or or does it only affect the bigger ones that you get from your patronage? Well, no, it basically it, it will have more of an effect on which spells will be available to you. Mm, okay. Um, we also use a strict alignment system. However, it is uh, 
lawful versus chaos, and that's actually explained on my blog. Um, built on the the oldest uh, system from OD&D, in that you're either you know for order and and uh, civilization, or you're for uh, chaos and entropy. So, but uh, yeah, so. Effectively, if you are a lawful character, you will have more difficulty casting and or learning the spells provided by the chaotic entities. Do, do you have a middle ground out of curiosity? Uh, or is that not, the... Not uh... for humans, no. Not for humans. Um, the interesting thing, uh, the alignment scale is from 3 to negative 3, and it's a continuum. Um, it takes one half point steps. And so doing different things can adjust your alignment during a session. And at the end of each session, I do a review and a grade, just like they do in uh, AD&D, to see how it's going to affect your level training when it's time to level up. Um, Because we also do level training with this, which I know is not necessarily part of that official (laughs) rule set. Um, I, like I, I said, have, uh, I'm trying to use, about it lately. <laughs> I'm trying have... to use all these old old rules in a in a fresh new setting, in in really in an, in an attempt to not break them, but find out what exactly their strengths are. But uh, yeah, so if you are a lawful character and you decide to go ahead and learn and use a chaotic spell it will have an effect on your alignment and it will slowly drag you off to the side of chaos. And so humans and other mortals, their alignment can be anywhere from 3 to 0.5 and then from negative 0.5 to negative 3, which would be the most chaotic a human can be. I like Um, that. I like that. You're either for it, against it, or you're an an infant or a wild animal. (laughs) Right. Right. Now, the, the other thing is, though, that there are gods and then the, the old ones. And the gods can go anywhere from, say, 5 to negative 5, and they can be neutral. And then the great old ones on either side, on the law side or on the chaos side, they start at 3 on the lawful side and go up to 6, uh, I believe 6, or on the chaos side, negative three, and go to negative six. So they are so lawful and so chaotic that humans literally can't comprehend. I think, I, I think I've seen an illustration of this. Have you done an illustration? So I, when I was stalking your blog uh, before we started chatting on <laughs> it is, Discord. It is on my blog, absolutely. Yep, I'll share the link with you so you very can share cool. it. Yep, there's a very interesting it illustration. Great. And I remember seeing that, and it's fun to hear you explain it, because I remember seeing that and thinking, that's interesting. Because the, uh, the, the, ancient, the ancients, the big guys, they represent the paragon of what those extremes are. And that, that's a very interesting way to tie that together and keep the continuum, uh, keep the continuum of the cosmos going. Right, because at the, end, at the end of the day, at the far ends of the spectrum, you either have a swirling void of chaos energy or you have an absolute diamond crystal of pure white light. And so that's as diametrically opposite as you can. Mm-hmm. So are you in the uh, more Moorcock camp or the more Anderson camp for alignment? I'm going to say the Anderson camp because I specifically use Anderson in this article as a as an example. <laughs> uh, I have read the, the Elric saga. However, I seem to have lost my... Uh, two-volume omnibus, and so I'm very disappointed. Um, so I haven't been able to do that research, but I do. That's on my list to go back and read those Ulrich stories once again. Yeah, I will make uh, I will make enemies by saying that I again again audience. I promise I have not pre-screened. <laughs> my, I have not pre-screened Stephen here. He, we just uh, I guess great minds think alike because I'm I'm hardcore in the Anderson camp. Um, I, I make. Uh, uh, not enemies, but we'll say I temper or I tempt friendships into new into acquaintances <laughs> with my passions over Moorcock and how I, I tend to prefer Anderson. And uh, we'll we'll 
we'll be vocal about it. But no, that's good. That's good. And I mean, yeah, I'm looking forward to rereading those with a more thoughtful eye mm -hmm. uh, towards the alignment system. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I read the uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions, I literally I went into that looking for the alignment discussions mm -hmm. and looking for uh, the you know the appendix and information, and so it was it was it was eye opening. Just to say the least, um, reading through that. Yeah, that was a fun read. I I did not expect what I got. Uh, interestingly enough, so it's it's written and and you can tell me if it uh, this sounds right or, or wrong. It feels like it's being told to you in a bar that you got a buddy who's got a cigar with you and you're both you're both sitting with a with a nice lager and he's telling you all about this crazy story that uh, you may or may not believe from him and it's got this it's got that tone even when it's not it's not in the first person for the protagonist but the story as it's told feels like uh, like it's buddies talking over the, the whole time it just that that's the 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 tone of the adventure just and it is able to touch on those kind of themes that we talk about the struggle of cosmic forces of the fairy realms and infringing on the uh the pro uh, the province uh providence of of law but uh it's 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 definitely it's definitely interesting. I was not I was not expecting it, uh, based on uh, based on the love or or hate that it gets in various forums. So, and I owe yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah that's an interesting take. I guess um, I've read a lot of the older fiction. Uh, I was blessed as a young man to have uh, uncles that had accumulated a very large library of science fiction and a few mm -hmm. fantasy novels. Um, and so as a young person, when we would visit my grandparents' house, there was a bookshelf basically filled with all these old paperbacks from the 50s and 60s. And so I got to read all those. Uh, so I started very young um, with my introduction to Appendix N, not knowing what it was, and then later discovering, oh my goodness, this is this and this is that. So it was, it was really cool. And I've spent a very long time, uh, the better part of 25 years, attempting to reassemble that library yeah very cool and here here i was thinking that uh, i had a blessed childhood because my grandparents had cinemax and uh, my parents went to bed early <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we didn't get the cable uh we didn't get the cable at my house until uh, i went to college mm -hmm. That sounds familiar. That's uh, that's when my parents uh, wired up internet at the house, actually. So I didn't have internet, and then I went to college, and then my dad uh, called Comcast and said, "Hey, I need me some, uh, I need me some high speed." Now that my son's gone, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that's how the conversation went. <laughs> yeah, we were still doing dial-up when I was in college, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. You could actually map the internet back then. Mm -hmm. It's it's much harder to do now. You'd be uh, you'd be. It's a much more complex series of nodes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, every every object is a node. So anyway, uh, where were we? Uh, alignment. Uh, yeah. So alignment is alignment is a fundamental part of the game, and definitely it's it's. Cause some noses to get bent out of shape a couple times when characters have taken actions that were not in line with their ethos. And I made private changes to the character's alignment score. But alignment, because it's so important to the game, not only for role-playing effects, but I also have made it a mechanical effect. That's why it has a number score. Um, you can, as a spellcaster... Um, you add or subtract, as the case may be, your alignment score from different spells, depending on what it is you're trying to cast. And again, this comes back to, say, a lawful magic user attempting to cast a chaotic spell. Their alignment will actually be a penalty towards their spell failure role. Hmm. They'll have a more difficult time casting that spell successfully. I like that. That definitely ties the mechanics to it. And it's interesting to put a number on it 
that implies that it may change. So, uh, like, ability scores are pretty static in, in old-school games. I offhand don't remember how they change or don't change in LFG, but you think about hit points, you think about stuff, uh, other games will have stamina or, or other effects. Because it's a number, the number can change, and the number has a tangibility to it that the words, uh, law or chaos, don't necessarily have. You can't be uh, if you say I'm I'm uh, half chaos, then that doesn't that doesn't mean anything from the purpose of BX. Uh, but if you say you're at 1.5 on the chaos scale, I guess minus 1.5, assuming law is positive, then that has a very definitive uh, m mechanical tie. It's very easy to conceptualize that, or, or it's easy for me at least to conceptualize that as a mechanical end. Uh, and, and it's it's interesting that you talk about tying it to the spellcasting specifically because that's a that's a incentivizing player behavior because if i'm going to if i'm going to learn chaos magic i need to lean into it uh, as a munchkin at heart i'm immediately tempted to figure out as chaotic as i can be without uh hurting the party, uh, so to speak. I don't want to. I don't want to be sowing the seeds of my own demise. But I'm mechanically incentivized to maximize the effectiveness of my character by acting a certain way. And that's an that's an interesting take because I'm a big fan of uh, carrots. You've heard of carrot and stick. You can hang the carrot in front of them and beat them with the stick. I'm a big fan of the carrot because I found that uh, I found that players respond very well to rewards uh, and it's a very easy way to kind of influence player behavior keep them in line that it is that it is and i have also found that by creating this alignment statistic or ability score if you will that by using it as a mechanical modifier to different activities it has a much broader application than you might expect for instance can be used in reaction rules. It can be used in uh, persuasion attempts. It can be used in, you know, obviously in spell casting, and so uh, it can be used in morale. You know, if you have a group of henchmen and you you hired them in a lawful town, and you are leaning towards chaos, and something happens, and they have to make a morale check. The difference between your alignments is going to be a penalty for their check. And so, you know, if, if you are more lawful than they are, that would be a bonus to their morale. And so it opens up a lot of avenues for very interesting play. Very cool. Now, do you use the same uh, base classes uh, as the LFG game, or have you tweaked that, expanded, or contracted the list? No, I have eliminated the list completely, and I have made all new classes that are almost completely customized for the setting. Okay. And again, the I use the character classes as world building, um, so there are different roles. Uh, I like to say that magic user is a class, and cleric is a vocation. Um, you know, fighter is a class, and soldier is a vocation. So... The character classes are really broken up into essentially all, it, they're all subclasses, really. So I have a knight, I have a soldier um, in the fighting man class. There is a shepherd who is a person whose background is literally being a mounted caretaker for livestock. And so their skills and starting weapon proficiencies and so on are based on that background um, and then we also have uh, basically a monster hunter my, my interpretation of a ranger in this uh, post-apocalyptic world that's that's cool that's an interesting take on ranger I was reading a blog post today actually where one of the one of the blogs I follow was complaining about ranger and how it wasn't implemented in a way that was satisfactory to the fiction that inspired it uh, but that's an interesting take the because in in a lot of a lot of circles the justification for the cleric class is to 
juxtapose the Arnesonian cleric with Van Helsing or with Solomon Cain, but thinking about what Van Helsing and Solomon Cain actually did, that that sounds uh, akin to what you may be describing in terms of uh, the the monster hunter type. Now, would the would the ranger then be drawn to uh, hunt or eliminate opposing alignment type stuff? Uh, they can. the uh, The description I have is that the uh, they're called vepators in this in this world, and uh, they are the inheritors of ancient scholarship students of forgotten skills and lore passed on from teacher to student over generations. Preserving the legacy through times when the light of civilization has wavered in dim. Hmm. The idea being that they are well-versed in the subtle skills of the wilderness and dangerous opponents in battle. They study ancient lore and they will develop the ability to wield magic later on. And they are dedicated guardians of civilization and protectors of the weak, hunting the creatures of chaos in the wild places of the world. They depend on perception and strength, and thus will gain a experience bonus for high scores. Then, of course, um, they start you know, with certain amounts of armor, and they can use, they can uh, later on use uh, liturgical and protection scrolls. Um, they must remain lawful in alignment or they'll lose their abilities and be treated as ordinary soldiers. And they also, I took a page from the Paladin in that other than whatever is needed for food, shelter, and level training, a Vepitor must donate all treasure to charities or temples associated with lawful alignment. This, okay. restriction, is, this restriction, though, is lifted when the character becomes a Vepitor knight and builds their uh, their own stronghold and creates a, a essentially a, a training school for for uh, other Vepitor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to uh, it's kind of hard to maintain the campus if you don't have the uh, if you have to donate all the funding. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then for more world building, you know, um, Rangers in D anD D they get to pick a, a certain monster. Uh, basically, the Vepator gains a bonus against large sized creatures with three hit dice or more um, across the board. They tend to be more alert and. Then also starting at third level, they're initiated into secrets of the history of the world, um, which includes knowledge of creatures from beyond the veil, as well as other monstrous creatures that I have not yet unfolded for the players because people haven't uh, completed that fifth level training yet. So we're going to keep sitting on that. If you don't I will uh, anticipate with bated breath. Uh, what uh, what you do with it when they get there? <laughs> now, I do. I know that you are on itch.io uh, as World of Weirth. Now, do I? I'm sitting here. I see the Underground Architects Dungeon Ecology, uh, but I don't. Uh, do you have intention to publish the World of Weirth setting or the World of Weirth uh, campaign book uh, in a similar fashion? I do, I do, and that's going to be uh, after the magic system is fully tested. Um, the I'm blessed with the player group that I have, in that they are really doing everything they can to to push the limits and and push the envelope of this of this setting and of this magic system. So we're learning a lot together, and they're helping quite a bit in developing the system. And uh, this technique. Well, very cool. Very cool. Now, are you are you going to uh, are you going to crowdfund that? Are you going to do that in house? How are you going to? How do you think you're going to handle that? That is a great question. I will probably pay someone to help me edit and <laughs> lay it out. Um, I have it's over a hundred and how many pages is it now? My supplement is bigger than the core rule book. Yeah, <laughs> and it's up to like 140 pages um, already. And that is, yeah, it's in 10-point text uh, with narrow margins. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to need some help, obviously, doing the editing and laying out to make sure that everything is parallel and, and 
says the same thing on page 100 as it does on page 30. Um, but I will likely just release it as a PDF. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I really am going to charge for it. I think I might do, you know, something available on Lulu mm -hmm. for just over cost. So if someone wants to get a printed one, uh, they can, and I'll make a dollar. Um, or maybe I'll just sell it for a dollar. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think that you know, in the in the spirit of the graciousness of the others that have come before me and developing their systems. Um, I mean, I'm having fun doing this, and it's kind of a labor of love. Uh, I think if there are any products that I'm going to sell in the future, they will definitely be more along the lines of uh, character class expansions or uh, adventure mode. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, as as, as evidenced by the uh, my propensity to release free crap on my on my uh, publishing mechanism uh, that is blog and Google Docs. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you 100% there. The passion project is the project that's worth reading nine times out of ten. So, well, a lot of this is already available on the blog, um, in a in a draft form. And so, yeah, I mean, theoretically, it's already there for free if someone wants to spend a few hours doing a copying and pasting. Mm -hmm. But the, the final form, I think, will be a fresh new look at a way of building a setting. Very cool. Hey, and there is a little dude on this skull pile. I just I'm, I saw I saw your pile of skulls logo. I just realized that red thing in the front. That's a dude standing on said skulls. <laughs> Open image and new tab. That's a bigger skull than I gave it credit for being. Also, uh, to while I'm still sitting on your uh, twit, while I'm still sitting on your itch page, uh, I do see I do see the Underground Architects Dungeon Ecology. Uh, that's a inexpensive looks like PDF where it talks about the monster. What do monsters eat? Where do monsters live? And how to handle that? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the? Underground Architects Dungeon Ecology, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. That is a uh, little zine that I put together. Um, you can actually uh, take the PDF and print it off um, on the you know the landscape format <clears throat> um, and let your printer do it booklet style, mm -hmm. and then you can just stack all the pages up and, and saddle stitch them. Um, but it's, it's set up to describe how the monsters in a dungeon survive, what they eat, and how to create and describe these uh, this food chain, this food pyramid, if you will, so that uh, your dungeon has verisimilitude. And there's a reason that, you know, how is this large creature trapped in this big cavern? You know, how could it even get in here? Well, it came in here as a child and, you know, it was very small. But it's grown because it eats these slimes and these mushrooms and these uh, other creatures that live in the dungeon and the underground areas. Yep, very cool. Yeah, that's a nice way to tie things together when you don't want to uh, just take the uh, the dragon in the ten by ten room at their word. <laughs> very cool, and that is. Uh, that is an exterior product. That is, it's not uh, tied in. It, it, it is written by you, obviously, but it's not necessarily tied in to the uh, setting that you're creating. Uh, it's based on the setting. Uh, however, I have made it basically system agnostic. That particular product is usable by any, really any OSR style game or any really any fantasy role-playing game with almost no modification. You create your own monsters. You... Uh, you know, it has it has blank encounter tables and, and discusses how to fill them. Uh, so it's it's very much system agnostic. Yep, yep. very very cool. So so we got a we got a very we got a chance this evening to to talk through some LFG uh, why you picked 
the LFG game. Uh, got some fun insight there that's uh, true to my experience as well uh, regarding players and their their uh, perceptions. So you come in with D and D, and they have a they already have an idea of what needs to be there. Uh, we talked a little bit about the magic system and uh, how it factors in with alignment, learning spells, casting spells. Uh, I'm a big fan of corruption tables or dangerous magic. Uh, I think that adds a layer of depth to it that uh, was absent in some of the older games. And we found you on social media here. We well, social media. I don't know if itch. I don't know if itch counts as uh, social, <laughs> but I definitely found your Twitter, and we're gonna post the the blog link, the all this other stuff uh, onto the show notes. And so we've gotten through a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, very interesting subject material. Very, uh, very. Uh, We'll call it refreshing, I guess, because when you get hit with something that's new and different, it, it piques the curiosity, and that's what we're doing for me as we're talking through this kind of stuff. So I think we've hit all the notes that we wanted to hit, uh, or that at least I anticipated we would, but... Uh, I don't want to leave. Uh, I don't want to leave off without giving you a chance to uh, capstone me. If there's something I missed, if there's something we'd like to dive into, or if you'd just like to give a sign off, I will. Uh, I will cede the floor to you, good sir. I uh, first, I'd like to thank you for having me on your show. I uh, was very honored to get the invitation, and I believe that we have covered a wide range of topics. I know when you first discuss having me on the show we were just going to talk about the magic system but as you can see the magic system is you know it, it is part of the world building and like i said i've been very interested in the last three or four years about really diving into the origins of the system and what the implied setting implies for the method of play Absolutely. So I'm applying those as best I can. Um, I, I, I will not, uh, you know, try to put forth that I'm playing anything rules as written. I'm certainly no hardliner when it comes to that. However, I am a firm believer in determining the intention of the rules and the type of game that uh, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax were trying to create and promote across the uh, across the community. Um, having said that, there's probably a little more to do about chainmail, which we didn't discuss at all in and mass combat in the role playing world. But we'll save that for another conversation. Maybe we'll throw that onto my YouTube channel, um, which, if anyone's still listening and you're interested in that at all, is uh, called Purple Druid Presents War Game Culture, and uh, myself and a couple other of my pals are doing a bunch of digging in archaeology and researching the old the old uh, mass combat systems for all of the major role-playing games uh, starting with chainmail and, and working our way up so yep. it's been really exciting and it's probably going to keep us busy in content through the end of the year Yep, a very a very fun series. As uh, as someone who came into the hobby through wargaming, a very fun series for me to walk through, and a topic I have a lot of opinions on, but a topic that will have to wait for its own podcast. <laughs> so definitely, I look forward to that one. I, I definitely want to get uh, and put you in the hot seat. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I will remember. Uh, I will I will remember to stop by the liquor store on the way home, so I'm ready. So. That's it. I was all sad tonight because I, uh, before, uh, while I was setting up the, uh, the the recording equipment, I went to the kitchen to get my uh, patented skull-shaped mug and a. I thought I had the uh, Terrapin Brewery out of Atlanta produces a a seasonal milk stout called the Muhu. It's got a picture of a their mascot, which is of course a turtle wearing a cow suit, and I thought that I had found those buy one get one free at our local grocery store so I had a 12 pack but uh, 
I cannot find them. So I guess uh, when sometimes when I go to work, things just kind of disappear or move to other places. So I have been sipping a blue Gatorade. <laughs> but it has not hurt my cognition. So maybe maybe blue Gatorade is the way to go with these kind of conversations. And that's, but, that's you know that's great advice. <laughs> blue Gatorade. Perfect. <laughs> so again, uh, I do I do want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for spending this Monday night with me to chat uh, about role playing games uh, and elf magic. Very fun subject. Very cool thing. And I do look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Um, I thank you also everybody on the other end of the speaker. Thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with me through all these episodes and between now and when we talk again, delve on. Square Ring Mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except f- licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast is Gold Coffee by Michael Ramirez C, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit-free sound effects license. Clear Square Ring Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Square email at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear Square email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.